everyone. Welcome back. This is the 2QB Experience. We don't really know what to call this one because we're not going to focus on a specific quarterback. Um, so, I don't know, Josh, what do you think? The the uh, offseason experience, the Super Bowl experience, where, where are you at on this? Both good. The uh, I miss football already experience. <laughs> How long till August experience? How long till MFL 10's experience? Right. Hopefully soon. <laughs> well, that voice you're hearing uh, from the person who isn't me is Joshua Lake. Hey, Josh, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you, Greg? I'm good. Uh, and as Josh just alluded to, my name is Greg, uh, Greg Smith. And uh, we are two of the co-founders of 2QBs. We've taken a little bit of a break, but we're back to talk fantasy in, uh, you know, the beginning of February, which, you know, as Josh has stated, is not really a, a big time for fantasy. But, you know, that does give us the opportunity to talk about big picture stuff. Um, and, and we'll get to some of that. But I kind of wanted to get your pulse on the Super Bowl, Josh. Um, where did you watch? How did you watch? Um, what did you think of the game? Like, where, where do you want to start on this? The context was terrible. I came down with bronchitis a few days before, and so was stuck at home with nobody, with no alcohol. So it was it was a suboptimal viewing experience. Uh, what about you? Were you watching it with other folks? Uh, yeah, I got together with some buddies at my friend Justin's house. Uh, we he 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 pulled out all the stops, man. He set up a TV outside on his deck, uh, uh-huh. and and in addition to like the TV in his living room and. Uh, really good spread of food. It was a you know a classic Super Bowl party. It, wow. Yeah, we all ate and drank too much, and I mean the game was awesome. Like it didn't seem like it was going to be awesome in the first half, but we all know what happened. That that was a, a crazy comeback, a crazy finish, and I don't know. It was definitely one of the best ones that I can remember in recent memory. I I, I always am hesitant to say like oh best Super Bowl ever like that sort of stuff. One, I'm not qualified to you know make that proclamation because I haven't watched every Super Bowl ever. And two, it, I do feel like people tend, I mean, recency bias is a thing, right? We, we know that. For sure. So I know just watching myself, there was no way I was going to turn the game off. But had it been a normal, like, regular season game, I probably would have found something else to do in the third quarter. Like, it just wasn't interesting. So what was the atmosphere like when you're in a crowd of people? Was it a lot more social, kind of ignoring the game there during that that kind of boring spot? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when you're around more people like that, at least in my experience, it's easier to kind of still enjoy it because you can talk about the commercials, you can, you know, just talk about the food, you can make fun of, you know, what's being shown on the sidelines and what the, you know, the announcers are talking about or what the players are doing. Like there was that moment when those guys got their helmets stuck together and I don't really know, <laughs> I don't remember exactly when that happened, but that sort of stuff, you know, like the little nuances of just watching a sporting event kind of came more to the forefront than the game itself if that makes sense yeah no it was a that makes a lot of sense it was kind of a slower year for commercials i felt like there wasn't there weren't as many that stood out i thought the commercials were by and large not entertaining at all and i think that to me it feels like they're just trying too hard nowadays and i feel like this has been gradually becoming more and more of a thing over the past i don't know three to five years and that everyone tries to make their Super Bowl commercials so splashy that they they tend to overthink things. They like either go too big or too subtle or too emotional, and it's just it, it feels cheaper. And I don't know. I, I guess that's just like the nature of the event itself. Like it's become such a big deal that we kind of expect these commercials to be outstanding. When before it was just like, you know, the commercials were good because that was you know when new commercials came out, right? Yeah, we've kind of lost the lightheartedness because they dumped so much money into it. And so it used to be just ridiculous and funny and off the wall. And they weren't even that good. It was just memorable because they were kind of 
unexpected. And now I feel like, yeah, what you said really is true. A lot of them feel like they're trying so hard to have a hit that it just comes off forced. Yeah. Did you have a, a favorite one or one that I don't know you enjoyed more than others? There were a few early on, and I'm struggling to remember them now, but for the most part, none are really memorable to the level past year's commercials have been. I don't know. Did any stand out for you? I really liked the Kristen Shaw commercials, uh, mostly just because I really like Kristen Shaw. And she did like one that was like a Fifty Shades of Grey spoof, and I've never oh. seen or read Fifty Shades of Grey. So, I, but I mean, I knew what it was, and I just think she's hilarious. And if you ask me to like recall what joke she told... I couldn't tell you that's, I mean, you're right. It wasn't super memorable, but it was one of those things where in the moment I was like, Oh, this, I, this lady's hilarious. I, I, I will watch anything that she does. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I know the one, as soon as you said it, I remember it. I don't remember which phone company it was for, but it was mocking Verizon, right? Yeah, probably. So, so they kind of got half their message across at least. So, yeah. We know that Verizon is bad, but shoot, who are we supposed to buy from? I don't right. know. <laughs> Yeah, I, some other highlights for me included um, some really quality lip reading uh, on Bill Belichick from early on, you know, when you could clearly <laughs> see him yell out, that's bullshit, or God damn it, you know, just like after a bad call or after a play didn't go his way, like they caught him a couple times, and that that was something that I do remember enjoying immensely as it was happening. <laughs> it's the little things. It is. What did you think of um, Tom Brady as MVP? This is, I mean, this is really, you know, kind of an old discussion at this point, but where'd you land on him? I mean, it was kind of predictable, right? We knew, we know that it's generally the quarterback, but I really thought James White deserved it. I mean, when do you have a running back with 14 catches leading the team and in receptions and yardage and really out of nowhere? I mean, everyone was debating, was it a blunt game? Was it a Deion Lewis game? And so I just felt like that was a better narrative because it's not that Brady single-handedly put the team on his shoulders and won it. Like, he played well in the second half. But it, it just felt like, really, James White is the piece that stood out to me. No, I'm 100% with you. I actually thought he would he would win. But when he didn't, I, I was a little surprised. But it, it makes sense. Like you said, it's the quarterback. It's Brady. It's number five for him. But I thought that James White, especially in that first half, was a more a more valuable player. Like he was the one guy in that offense besides Brady who was doing anything with the ball. Once he got it, you right. know, everybody else was dropping passes or, you know, getting uh, stuffed or fumbling like LeGarrette Blunt. Like I thought that white was the one, you know, kind of standout player from new England side in the first half. And because Brady had, you know, the immense passing yardage and, and all that, he, he kind of overtook the narrative in the second half, but I, I thought white deserved it too. Yeah, and related, if we talk most valuable plays, I my immediate reaction on the Patriots winning was disappointment that we're going to forget the Julio Jones catches so much quicker. Oh my because God. he just had two unbelievable catches that if the Falcons had won, those would be the plays that are remembered. On four and instead, targets. Right. Like it was it's just it was such a crazy performance from him. And we're really largely like five years from now people will struggle to remember those catches and they'll remember the Julian Edelman catch or they'll remember the comeback score range, but they won't remember the, just the absurdity of getting to watch Julio Jones at his best. Yeah. On the biggest stage too, that catch he made on the sidelines where he got both feet in, that was one where in the room, I'll admit that I watch a ton more football than most of my friends who I watched the Super Bowl with. So I don't want to brag, but I feel like I see little stuff like that more where I'm like, oh, he definitely got his feet and he tapped that second foot. It's good. They're like, no, nah, he didn't get them both in. And I'm like, just wait for the replay, wait for the replay. <laughs> it comes in and I'm like, yup, 
nailed it. And that's why he's the best. You know, God, that catch was so amazing. Like I, I will never forget that catch. I know that you know, like you, you're, you're completely right. Like the, uh, what's the right word? Like the immensity of that play will be lost over time. But to me personally, I, it won't be lost on me because I remember when that happened, I was like, shut it down. This game's over. Because all they had to do was run the ball and kick a field goal at that point. That was crazy. Yeah, it was just just baffling. I mean, I will for a long time remember the stat that once they were up twenty five, they only ran the ball five times the rest of the game. Unbelievable with a with a quality running game. It's not like they were, you know, the Patriots or the the Washington Redskins. You know, they they are a team that was known for having good running backs, a good line, and they just chose not to. They just outsmarted themselves. They they overthought it, just like the Super Bowl commercials. Right, and it's it was before the Tevin Coleman injury. It wasn't just oh no, we can't afford to lose another running back. It was it was very much we just are going to keep throwing it regardless. Well, put Teron Ward in there. Who cares? All all you needed to do was kill the clock. <laughs> like, it, and that's the yeah. thing is like it wouldn't it wasn't about talent. And it's like honestly, you're, if if they were worried about like Devonta Freeman getting hurt, like that's that's wrong too. I mean, it's a Super Bowl. That's when you pull out all the stops. I mean, they had their broken leg center in there like why not you know risk losing guys i mean that's what you played the whole season for and like kyle shanahan saying i called it the same way i called the whole season like no you had great (laughs) running backs all year and sure they were involved in the passing game but you ran all over a lot of teams yeah do do you buy into the extra long halftime momentum shift narrative at all i think in some super bowls yes but i don't think that was really the big difference maker here I just I think it was into the third quarter before it really felt like things shifted. Yeah, I think it's it's probably weird for both teams. Like the one angle that makes me believe that maybe it mattered was just in the sense that the Patriots had been there before. You know, a lot of those guys had been in the Super Bowl and the Super Bowl halftime is always long. Right. To the point where, you know, if they. They, they were more used to having a longer halftime like that than the Falcons, but God, that feels so narrative heavy. Like, does it really mm-hmm. matter? Like both the teams could use the rest. Uh, both the teams came out in the second half and, you know, I mean, the Falcons, they didn't, you know, crap the bed in the third quarter necessarily. They didn't play great. They didn't play as well as they did in the first half, but I mean, the game really turned around in the fourth quarter. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't, I think your point is right, and the announcers brought up how much longer the halftime, I think it was the announcers, maybe it was Twitter, <laughs> of simultaneously watching both, um, but pointed out just how much longer it is. And there's definitely a difference, but it didn't, it just didn't have that feel. Like, if it was that, you would think that the third quarter would kind of start off and be really noticeably different, and it didn't feel that way. It felt like just a continuation for a while. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think that anybody who wants to blame the halftime for the the shift in the game, they're just using that as like a crutch for what really happened, which is that the Patriots ran almost twice as many plays. Or maybe they did run exactly or almost twice as many plays. It was what, 93 to 46? I don't remember the exact numbers, but yeah, it was it was an absurd ratio. Yeah, I man, one thing that that kind of made stand out to me was the value of the combination of pace and player interchangeability. Like you you hear a lot of people saying, Oh, the Falcons defense was tired. The Falcons defense was tired. Well, I believe that, that, that feels very true to me, but at the same time, shouldn't the Patriots offense be tired as well? I mean, they were out there for the same number of plays and that got me thinking about, you know, the, the fact that Edelman and Amendola and Deion Lewis and James White can all run the same types of plays and they can filter in and out 
And, and I, I think that that interchangeability is kind of, it's something that we see a lot of the good teams do. We see Atlanta do it with the running backs, right? And I think that's, it, it's an important distinction because when you have a team like the Patriots who have been established so long, that can work really well. You say, we're going to bring in people that can fill our roles. Whereas I think a common and correct complaint is too many new coaches come in and say, I'm going to fit players to my roles. The difference is because Belichick and his system have been there so long, they can do it. I mean, they've brought in the right players. They are able to do that. Whereas a new coach, like if if Sean McVay went into to Los Angeles, oh, that's weird to not say St. Louis. <laughs> if, if he went into Los Angeles and just said, I am going to run the system I'm going to run. I don't care which players we have it would fall flat on its face. Like, you can't just do that. And so it really is one of the fun things about watching these franchises that have been stable for so long is that they've brought in guys that fit their mold and they're not having to change their philosophy as much. I mean, certainly Belichick is great and does change his philosophy, but I feel like they're just two very different types of teams, whether they're established or not. Yeah, you're right. That continuity is so important. You know, the the fact that they've been doing it for so long and kind of pivoting off of what you're talking about, about bringing in guys to fit his system. He also knows what types of guys he needs. Like he knows that he wants quick, shifty guys. Like it doesn't matter if they're, you know, giant monster receivers like Julio Jones. He just needs guys who are good at getting open. He needs guys who are quick off the line, things like that. And, and he knows how to target those players in free agency and the draft, etc. So, I, I think that, you know, the experience in choosing the players matters just as much as, you know, the players having been around, the coaches having been around, you know, for a certain number of years with the system in place. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I I am never I've never been a Patriots fan, but I'm also just incredibly impressed with what they put together because I I watched football when they were dreadful. And so watching them be a dynasty and having the memory of them being terrible is just it's impressive to see what they've built. And so much of the credit goes to Belichick. Uh, Brady is obviously a key thing, but you've got to think that Belichick has to go down as the greatest coach ever. Yep. Uh, a few more. I have a few more quick questions for you, and we'll try to run through these you know, kind of rapidly. Was Lady Gaga lip syncing? <laughs> I haven't even considered it. I would assume so because of how perfectly she sang despite all of the running and athleticism. But I, I really wasn't even thinking about it as I was watching. So if she did, she did it well. That's a good assumption because she was definitely lip syncing. They all lip sync <laughs> in the Super Bowl halftime show. And that's not to say that she doesn't have like a live mic sometimes. But for all, any you know vocal that you actually hear coming from her voice, like you're also probably hearing twice as much just background track. And this yeah. is coming from you know a weird... Uh, place but i i it drives me a little crazy <laughs> it's like i kind of wish they would scale back their performance aspect of it and let some of these artists like actually perform because her voice is really incredible like she's she's a great you know vocal talent and i mean that was probably her voice on the backing track so shut up greg but i don't know like it just fe it felt fake to me as i was watching it and mm. may maybe i just see what i want to see i'm not sure yeah it didn't it didn't. There are certainly performances where it's super clear, but I, I didn't get that vibe watching it. Like it was just good entertainment. I didn't get out of kind of the the immersion. But I, I, I hear what you're saying, and it's just a different type of concert, right? Like they're playing to a TV audience, and just it's a it's a different sort of thing. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, it's it's more about the performance than it is about you know the 
the music or the the sound i guess but uh, i don't know it's it's <laughs> a personal gripe that's all uh the if the falcons had won you had mentioned julio jones and those those two crazy catches do you th- who do you think he would have won the mvp if they had you know finished that game out and held on to the lead see i was debating this in the third quarter when it looked so clear and i don't know that it's so so clear it was him um now i'm blanking on who it was that ran back the interception for six um or how about Grady Jarrett tying the Super Bowl sack right. record? Right. That was another option as well. Matt Ryan, just because he's a quarterback, was also going to be an option. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was very clear who it would be. Yeah, I, I thought that if the Falcons had won and if Jarrett had maybe got like one more sack or one more, you know, stop behind the line, one more big play on the defensive line, I think he would have got it because, mm. you know, set the record. Um, he was really instrumental in you know, on those plays where, where he sacked Brady. Like those were all big sacks. I think that he was probably, the, in my mind, the guy who, who deserved it the most. But you're right. There was an argument for a lot of guys. That's kind of why I wanted to see where you were at. Um, overtime. Oh, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I, after the Super Bowl, I you know, logged on to Twitter. But, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have. And all, all of a sudden, I think it was like the next day, actually, you see people discussing whether the NFL overtime rules are fair, whether they should implement the college system. And I'm curious as to how you feel about that. I don't think it's ideal, but I really don't want the college system. I mean, that's the NFL is not a game of start on the 25 and see what you can do. So I like the long field. I think there's probably better ways to do it, but I prefer what we have to what college has. Yeah, I kind of just like that they're different. And the the reason that the discussion came up is, you know, people saying, oh, well, it would have been more fair if the Falcons had opportunity to score a touchdown themselves. And I, I just don't see it that way. Like, I don't see that being the reason that they lost. Like, there were so many other ways the Falcons could have won that game before right. it even got to overtime that complaining about the overtime rules for the, the Falcons' saint, sake is just, you're just being a Falcons apologist at that point. No, that's that's absolutely true. Like, whether or not it's a good overtime system, that is not the reason they lost. Yeah, and I think that if, if we had the college system in the NFL for the Super Bowl, I don't, I still think the Patriots would have won that game. You know, there was no way Atlanta's defense was stopping anybody at that point. I, I just I don't see it mattering. I think that the Falcons were gassed. I think the Patriots would have kept scoring until Atlanta didn't. Yeah, no, it's it definitely by the time it got to overtime, it just felt inevitable that Brady was going to win the game. Um, I think that we should also take a quick moment to revel in like the glory that was Edelman's catch. Yeah, wasn't that freaking ridiculous? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the fact that it should have been an interception by all rights, and then it became the, probably the most memorable play of the game, I would say. Yeah, totally overshadowing that Julio catch, too, because it happened right after. It was just like, right. oh, poor Julio. <laughs> right. And it's just, it was such a, a Julian Edelman catch, too, right? Like, yeah. it's not this immense athletic talent that gets him the ball. It's sticking with a play. It's doing everything you can. It's selling out, like or throwing your body at the ball and it was just such a a stereotypical julian edelman or wes welker or just just a patriots play yeah and i was i was bragging about how i knew that that one edel or julio catch was a catch like as it was happening i could have sworn that edelman ball hit the ground from you know the t like the original tv angle and i was arguing like no way did he catch that you because it it kind (laughs) of stalled in the in the air 
without his hands around it for just a brief moment mm-hmm. that from, you know, the high angle that they use for most of the game, it looked like the ball was resting on the ground to me for like just a split second before he got his hands on it. And then they cut to that perfect angle for like down low field level. And the, the ball just kind of hovers there right. before he, you know, gathers it. And I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. That was so crazy. How did that work? Man. <laughs> anyway, I had to bring that up because, you know, it, it was it was amazing. It was incredible. Yeah, no, it was. I, what I was going to ask you is, and I, I will preface by saying I do not think this is going to happen. I'm not predicting this. But isn't there some part of you that would not be surprised to see Tom Brady retire a la Peyton Manning? Like walk at, walk away on that note? I think he's already stated that he is definitely not retiring. But I, I kind of thought that going into the game. I was like, you know, if he wins this one and, and retires, I mean, it's the perfect exit, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. He's he's not retiring. I'm not saying this is happening, but I felt that way going in. And then just the remarkable story, like the the legacy ender that would have been, just made it seem even more possible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's already a legend, but that would have been a legendary, you know, final performance as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that these guys definitely like to hold on too long, like football players, athletes in general. I'm surprised that more of them don't consider that sort of thing. I guess, you know, when you're getting paid as much as you do in the, in sports, like maybe that's just stupid. But in terms of like, if they really cared about that sort of legacy shit, which like I said, I mean, I, I don't think that they should necessarily, but you know, to us as fans, like, I don't know. I feel like you'd become more famous by doing something like that. Yeah. Just who knows? Maybe, maybe he is just kind of a, a freak of nature and such a health nut that he's going to be able to play another three years. I doubt it. I'm not saying that this next year he's going to be terrible. I just, yeah, for the sake of the legacy, like you will not have a better note to end on than you would have this year. No, I don't think so. Especially considering the context of that game specifically, like you mentioned, just the way he came back, the way the team came back, the fact that he won the MVP, like it kind of all just adds up to this, this perfect moment for Tom Brady. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how his, I don't think his legacy can go, can get bad or or worse at all. You're right. There's something to be said about, you know, if he were to walk away now, that is, that's a grand exit. Yeah. It just, at the end and watching him, watching him celebrate with his family, taking the trophy from Goodell and all the narratives there, like it just it seemed like you were watching a Hollywood movie, right? Like it's the way you would end a story. Yeah, totally agree. So anyway, like I said, not saying he will. Yeah, you got anything else on the Super Bowl? I don't think so. I think we've kind of covered it pretty well. Well, now what the hell are we going to talk about? <laughs> Fair question. Uh, we've got the combine coming up. What's your what's your stance on the combine? How how interested are you? Like, if you were going to grade your level of interest, are you going to be glued to to every drill? Are you going to watch a recap every night? Are you just going to kind of see the numbers afterwards? Where do you fall on that? Yeah, I'm not a big college guy. I'm also not a big combine guy I, for for that same reason. I don't really know the players. I, I th- I'll pay attention to you know the numbers that come out after the fact. Like, I'll be on Twitter and whatnot, but I'm not going to watch anything. I'm not gonna. I might pull up some you know highlights here and there, but not. Not actively. I won't be. It's not. It's not a big part of my, you know, uh, like football brain. I, I kind of let the other folks in the industry do the heavy lifting there, mostly because I don't really, I don't really know how to compare combine numbers that well. Like people talk about, oh, he ran a, a, a four six forty or something like that. I don't really know contextually what that means. 
and and I like to kind of let the people who are smarter than me guide my you know uh, understanding of of what happens at the combine. How about you? I just on your last point, I think that's such an important principle. I know I wrote about it last off season, but just know what you're good at, know where you should trust people that are much smarter than you. Not not even smarter than you, just they know more about a specific thing than you do. And I think too many fantasy owners try to be the best at everything. And you're just not. Like, you can't compete with the folks that put in tons of time, energy, math, formulas, whatever it may be. I, I'm pretty similar to you. Like, if I'm if I am around the house, I will turn on the NFL network and see it, but I'm not going to actively try and watch a lot. Um, I would love to see the quarterbacks throw, like especially the drills that are really probably as much for the receivers as they are for the quarterbacks, but just watching them run routes and throw and just see how that looks. But then really the biggest thing is just look, pulling up the stats at the end of it. Like I, I will be curious and I've got historical databases of the combine scores. And so I'll be interested in seeing where people fall. But it also isn't it's not going to move the needle a lot for me, because like you were saying, I'm going to tend to rely on folks that know more about how these players played in college. And I'm just watching to see kind of <clears throat> the, the outliers, like who's going to run the craziest 40 that's going to shoot that wide receiver up the board and things like that, rather than like readjusting my rankings based on it. Yeah, I get really distracted and kind of off put by the narrative stuff that comes up too, like hand size and a lot of the stuff that shouldn't necessarily matter as much as people want to make it out to. And I mean, I say that, but there are also people who are, who will argue that, Oh no, that stuff does matter. And that's why they measure it. So I, I get the point of it coming up, but it, some of that stuff seems so trivial to me that w- what I really care about is like the overall package. Right. And, and, and I think that as analysts, we'd be better off taking that more holistic view about a player, about a team, about you know, kind of football in general Instead of like focusing on one thing that stands out as, oh, this is a weakness, oh, oh, this wide receiver drops too many passes, or oh, this guy's hands are, you know, half an inch too small. Like, <laughs> look at what else they're doing, what else they're bringing to the table, and you know, you have to kind of mash it all together, right? Yeah, no, and it's just like one of the things that's kind of fun to watch at the combine is the gauntlet drill, where the receivers just run through and they're catching a lot of passes from all sides and things like that. And it's fun to watch, and you'd notice when they drop passes and when they don't. But does it really matter? Like, you've got years of game tape, and you're going to worry about them in shorts catching passes from people they've never met before. Like, I just, we build a lot of narratives around things that don't matter. Yeah, and I do think there is something to be said about size and strength and those sorts of measurables. But in terms of, like, one drill, 140 time, like, if they made these guys run the 40 you know, 10 times over the course of five days, I'd be a lot more interested, to be honest. I'd like to see average 40 times. I don't want to see, you know, the one 40-yard dash time. Like, what does that really tell us? We know that sample size matters. Why are we going to let this one drill for one player on, you know, a certain day in February or, or March dictate <laughs> the how this how that player should be ranked, you know, in the draft and, and going into a team? That just seems silly to me. Right. Yeah, it's I'm, I'm with you. It, it should be a holistic analysis. And, and the combine numbers are a piece of it, but they shouldn't be weighted very heavily. Yeah. Are there any particular, you know, players or, you know, uh, yeah, I guess just rookies that you're you're interested in? No, I'm I am with you that I largely will let the folks that pay more attention to college dictate where I start off with. And I, I haven't gotten to that point of analyzing the rookies. For me, it's it's all about the quarterbacks, though, right? Because yeah. at this point, 
I don't think that anyone, whether they're in the NFL or in fantasy football, like I don't think we know how the quarterbacks are going to shake out in this year's draft. And that's all about to start getting solidified. Like we'll have the combine that'll do a lot. Then we're going to have pro days that'll do a whole bunch more. And so this is kind of the period where we start really getting a sense for what order the quarterbacks are going to be drafted in. Yeah, and I think kind of looking a little bit further forward, I'm very interested to figure out which teams in the draft are going to target a quarterback that early. Like we know that Cleveland could use one. We know that San Francisco could use one. And those guys are drafting right at the top. And I mean, I don't know if any of these players deserves that sort of draft slotting. Usually, you know, the general opinion of football minds is that these guys don't deserve that sort of merit, but these teams are so hungry for a quarterback. I'll be interested to see, you know, which ones pounce and which ones don't. Right. And and they're going to rise. I mean, we see it every year. Like, yep. oh, these guys aren't great. They're not that exciting. Turns into, oh my goodness, we have to take these people at the top of the draft. Isn't it funny how that kind of mirrors fantasy ADP too? It's like in, when you're doing MFL 10s in May, uh, or or even June, like the quarterbacks are, you know, nice and low in the rankings. You can wait forever to draft them. And then, you know, as the months go by, you know, as the season gets closer, you know, the quarterbacks start to creep up ADP a little bit just because they're quarterbacks and people want <laughs> to draft them. It's so weird. Right. And so I think there's a wide enough crop this year that it, it really is going to be interesting to see because Deshaun Watson is the name everyone knows. But he could go into the second round of the NFL draft, depending on how this process plays out. And then guys like Pat Mahomes from Texas Tech, that's not really seen as a school that produces NFL quarterbacks. He's interesting. Mitch Trubisky's interesting. Brad Kaya is still out there. Like, There's all these names that, if things fall right over the next two months, they could become the top guy. But we really just don't know. Yeah, it seems like Trubisky is the guy who's getting the most hype at the moment. But again, with the combine, with pro days coming up, it'll be interesting to see, you know, where his stock goes from here. Because, and again, like I, I'm not an expert. I don't, I don't know anything about these guys aside from what I read, you know, after the fact. So I'll be leaning on things like, uh, like Anthony Amico's uh, armchair scattering reports, uh, other folks, you know, around the industry who who do a better job of profiling these guys. And honestly, that's what I'm looking forward to more than, you know, the combine itself. It's the analysis from, you know, the the smart minds around the fantasy industry because. Even in regards to real football, like that, that's not always what we care about. It's like we don't necessarily care that a quarterback is, you know, a winner. Uh, we want a guy who's going to put up stats. We want a guy who's going to find himself in a good situation with good receivers. And uh, I mean, we saw it with Dak Prescott. You know, you put him on the Cowboys behind that offensive line, throwing to Des Bryant, handing off to Ezekiel Elliott, and he's a fantasy starter. So, yeah. It, 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 It'll it'll be interesting. Like I think if like let's just assume that Cleveland and San Francisco both took quarterbacks to start the the draft. Like I kind of don't care if the let's say Cleveland quote unquote messes up and takes the wrong guy. I still think that guy's probably more important for fantasy based upon the team around him than whoever would be drafted second by the Niners because their infrastructure is so poor. Does that make sense? Oh, I, I was going to say that the same thing. If you didn't, I totally agree that, which is kind of bizarre, right? Like they were saying the Browns are a better organization than anyone else's. It's a better fantasy situation. Right. It's just the deep, I mean, San Francisco was one of the deepest teams in the league not that long ago. And so just the turnaround is why it's surprising to me. Have you started your MFL 10 prep yet? Yeah, for sure. How's that going? <laughs> Uh, it's good. I've done a lot of time. I went back and looked, and the first thing I wanted to look at was 
my win rate if it changed by month of draft. And I was very consistent starting in February all the way through August would win about the same rate. And so that that has been true two years in a row now. So that was the first piece. But after that, it's really looking at at players and where I think they should go. And uh, I'm going to be on the road of his podcast this next week with a bunch of folks talking about best ball and kind of big picture strategy. And it's a lot of fun because who knows, like these are the first 2017 drafts. So there is no ADP. There's no, no telling how it's all going to play out. And that's kind of the, the exciting thing. Normally we build off of a foundation that's already there. This part of the year is where you kind of get to blaze a new trail. So you talked about looking at your win rate as it changed month by month. Did you also tie in any looks at, you know, your drafting tendencies month to month like that? Like, were you targeting different players in April than you were in August? I didn't do the analysis because I know my my personal approach is to draft just about the same in every single league. And I feel like I have a strategy that works fairly well. And the only real difference is that rookies change so much in their ADP from these early drafts to post NFL draft. And so they shift around like I'm I'm taking more rookies in February and March than I am later because their ADP just skyrockets once they're on an NFL team. Yeah, it's weird, though, because those can in February, it seems like they could more easily become dead picks, right? For sure. But the the thing is that a, a dead pick after the 13th, 14th, 15th round, like none of those is going to kill you. And so it's all upside because if you hit one of those guys that becomes a starter in a good situation, it can win you a league. But missing on one player there really isn't a, a deal breaker. Yeah. And that's kind of the story with all the players you're drafting in that range, right? Like it doesn't matter if he's a rookie or a third year player. If he's a boom bust guy and you're drafting him in the, the 14th round. Uh, what's the difference, right? Right, and it's last year's example was Devontae Adams. I had a whole lot of him because you could get him in the very last round. Nobody liked him. He would go undrafted in a lot of leagues. And I think this year we probably should throw Laquan Treadwell into that mix of guys that just everybody hates. Like universally across the board, everyone says they're bad. You might as well take a swing on them. Like if everyone's right, cool, whatever. You have 19 other players. But if they're wrong and you have a very interesting starter, that could win you a league. Yeah, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that specific example, though, if only because at least when you were buying Devontae Adams, you were buying a piece of Aaron Rodgers. Like, do you really want a piece of Sam Bradford in that offense or Teddy Bridgewater? I I mean, Treadwell, you're right. He could very well, you know, outperform expectations because his expectations are so low right now. But I don't know if he's the type of player who would win you a league just based upon the type of offense that he's in. What, what do you think? So I, I actually disagree with you on that. We, we don't disagree a lot. Um, I think there's two reasons. One is we saw Stefan Diggs, Adam Thielen, and Kyle Rudolph all be very valuable this year, despite a very bad, mediocre offense. And then just in general, um, I think it was probably two years ago, Renee Miller had an article on Rotoviz looking at, do you want to pick winners? And so are you looking for good NFL teams and players on those teams? And what she found is that at quarterback, you absolutely are. Like quarterbacks do better if they're on better teams, which makes sense. But for all of the other skill positions, it really doesn't matter. Like you're looking for the role on the team more than you are the team success because there just there is enough fantasy success to go around at the skill positions if you're in a good good situation on the team. 
And so, yeah, I don't, I am no Treadwell fan. I don't see a reason to think he's going to be great, but I do think that if he gets into a good role there, there's, there's enough that he could be useful. See, I, I don't know. I just, I, I don't know. Thielen and Diggs and Rudolph, those guys aren't going away either. So if Treadwell is going to carve out a position in that offense, it seems like that pie is just going to get split up a little bit more. And and while I agree with your notion that skill position players don't necessarily need to be on winning teams, I'm not talking about winning versus losing when I talk about the Vikings and their offense. I'm talking about the type of quarterback that Bradford is and the type of offense that they run. You know, that check down, check down style of offense. Like, I don't think that in a, like a low volume or, or a low upside offense like that, a guy like Treadwell's really going to bust out. Like, unless something changes there, I just don't see that offense as being one where a player is going to, you know, make that sort of leap from... And again, it's all about value. So if you have a guy who's going in the last round, if you get any value from him, that's worth it. I get that. I just don't think that a guy like Treadwell is on the same... Like, he doesn't have the same upside as someone like Adams does because of the team that he plays on and the offense that he plays in. And it's not about winning and losing. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and I hear your point, and I think I will agree with some of it, that sure, if if we if we say that Treadwell's best-case scenario is that he's the fourth target in that offense, then yeah, I agree. There's not much interest there. Um, but I don't think we know that. Similarly, like it's easy to say now that with Devontae Adams, it should have been clear, but it was anything but clear last offseason. Like, there's a reason he was going undrafted after 240 players. It just we thought he was dreadful. He's going to be passed by Janice or Abaderis or Trevor Davis or like it was so far from clear that he would slot into the wide receiver two role that he eventually did. And I don't think we can so easily sit here in February and say we know exactly what the Vikings are going to look like. And Treadwell is a first round pick for a reason. Like there is always the chance that something clicks and he finally lives up to expectation. Again, I'm not arguing that he will as much as. I don't think we can be sure he won't. You're right. He could. And it's all about range of outcomes. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the number two receiver on Green Bay is more valuable than the number two or maybe even the number one receiver on Minnesota. And that's and that's why a guy like Treadwell doesn't interest me quite as much as a guy like Adams would in the last round of an MFL 10. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And attaching yourself to a good offense makes a lot of sense. I'm not not opposed to that by any means. Yeah. So I don't really know where we need to go from here, but I did want to talk to you um, about an article that I, I wrote. It's going to come out this week. It's actually scheduled to post on Monday. It'll probably come out before this podcast is live about uh, quarterback regression uh, from 2016 to 2017, or I guess from the past four years to 2017. Um, I use the startable quarterback percentage uh, that I came up with last offseason, and I'm going to let the article speak for itself in terms of the players I think are going to negatively or positively regress. Uh, but I wanted to talk to you about some, I don't know what the right word is, what uh, some methodology for how I track, you know, a bust week or a bad week for a quarterback. And this is something that uh, a Twitter follower pointed out to me and I noted in the piece, but essentially what I was doing before was looking at top 10 weeks, top 20 weeks, as you know, you know, very good starting weeks and startable weeks. And then I, I also looked at QB 25 or, or below, basically outside of the top 24 quarterbacks as bust weeks. And this person, I, and I'll have to look up who it is, but they, they mentioned the fact that, 
you know, there are a lot of weeks where there are enough buys that there are only 26, 28 quarterbacks starting anyway. Is it really fair to call, you know, QB 25 and QB 26 busts compared to, you know, if, if those are the last two starting positions available? Does that make sense? Yeah, I I think that's a, a really interesting point because we're not looking at the same sample every week. And so if we're using just strict cutoffs, then it may vary depending on the size of like the number of teams. It's an interesting point that I hadn't really considered before. Yeah. And part of the reason why I used, you know, top 20 versus sub 24 originally was that I figured, you know, there really isn't that much difference between QB 19, QB 20 and QBs 21 through 24. Like, at that point, you're probably, you know, close enough in points. Like, there will be some weeks where this isn't the case. But for the most part, those guys near the bottom are going to be close enough, right? So I really wanted to distinguish between, you know, those kind of just good enough to be basement starters versus guys who were legit bad for the week. And that's why I went with 24 and below. But I didn't consider the bye weeks when I did that. And I'm wondering now if what I should be looking at is, you know, top 10, top 20, and then 21 and below. And I'm coming around on it, and here, here's my reason why. Ultimately, because there is very little difference between QB20 and QB24, you don't want to be in that range. Like, even if that's, you know, close enough to start ability, what you really want, especially in a 12-team league, is you want to separate yourself from the rest of the teams in your league, right? You want you don't want the the last starter available. You want, you know, the the fifth to last starter, or, or you want two guys who are in the top 10, right? You, you, want, you want your guys to be as good as possible without impacting you know, the rest of your roster negatively. And so I'm wondering, like, if if I start to look at a bust as everything below QB 20, even in a 12-team league where QBs 20 through 24 are technically starters, I think that might be correct. What do you think? Hmm. It'd be interesting to see the data on what the, the fantasy point cutoffs look like for these. Yep. Because I almost wonder if you could do it on a strict point basis, like a sub 10-point week is a bust week or a 12-point week, whatever it may be. That's probably the more correct way to do it. And and you would look at, you know, okay, what is on average, what does the QB 20 right. average? Right. But, but then this, the question still becomes, where do you set the cutoff? Sure. And that, that's kind of the point, right? Is anytime you cut it off, I mean, you do the same thing at QB 10, right? Like some right. weeks, QB 10 and QB 11 are basically the same guy. Other weeks, there may be five points between them. I know. I, I, I think it's a tough call because there's merit both ways, right? No, definitely. And and it's it's such a gray area that like I feel like you might as well just pick arbitrary starting or, or cutoff points and just kind of see what the data tells you. Uh, and that's why I, I didn't really mind using just QB finish versus points. But you're right. It's not perfect. And you're going to like if you really want to see the nuance, you have to look at multiple factors. You can't just look at whether a guy was QB nine or QB 11 like there there might not be that much of a difference in terms of points. So So maybe it has to do with just like standard deviations or something like that. But there's so much variance in how these guys score that I don't know how useful a standard deviation even really is in, in this mm-hmm. sort of context. And I think you can flip what you just said about, like, look at other things. and Because you can also say, does it really make a difference? Like, if we get down into the nitty gritty of it and you change someone's bust percentage from an 8% to a 9% because of your methodology, like, isn't the, the bigger picture still the same? Like, you're still saying... In general, how does this guy play out? No, you're right. And and that's kind of why I 
I don't like using the startable quarterback percentage as much on just a yearly basis. I like to, I like more the aggregate stuff. I like looking at a guy's, you know, four year average or his three year average or career average. If, if, you know, we can get to that point with the newer or the younger guys, or I don't have to go mine so much data, um, selfish side, the <laughs> selfish side note there. But, um, yeah, the, the point is that like, I think that at some point you had like sample size is so important that you, you if you're looking at just one season that you're right, the difference between uh, even like a, a 10% bust rate and a 15% bust rate might only be one bust game or two bust games. And if that line itself is already fuzzy, you know, between what's a bust and what isn't, then yeah, you're kind of just looking for ballparks and you're looking for uh, relative values. Like you want to look at, like you don't just look at Alex Smith and say, okay, he had a, you know, two, two thirds of the time he finished in the top 20 that doesn't tell you a whole lot. You have to compare that to other quarterbacks like in known commodities. Like we know that Aaron Rodgers and Andrew Luck are better quarterbacks, right? We know that those guys are just more talented in better situations. What, however you want to quantify it or, or, you know, describe it narratively, like they're better fantasy players than Alex Smith. And so you can look at, you know, Alex Smith finishing two thirds of his games as a top 20 guy in this past season. But then you can look at Aaron Rodgers and see that he did it every week. Or you can look at Andrew Luck and see that he did it uh, 86.7% of the time. And then you kind of on down the line. It's all relative, right? Yeah, and I think that's the more helpful way to view quarterbacks in general anyway, is tearing them off and looking at which ones are similar. And and this goes to the point you always make, especially in redraft draft season, is like wait as long as you can within the tier. And that really is more important. Like If you take the startable quarterback percentage or any other similar similar metric and say oh wow this guy's qb8 versus qb10 in this so like it like that's not the way to use it you shouldn't be looking at this guy versus the next guy above him or something like that it's more just big picture who clusters together yeah and and the bust rates that's why i'm still on the fence as to whether or not like bottom you know sub 24 versus sub 20 i don't know if it really matters because i have a feeling the same trends, the same relative trends are going to emerge, right? Like the bad quarterbacks are going to bust more often and the good quarterbacks are going to bust less often. Right. Yeah. It, it is weird though. Like the fact that in any given week where there are buys, there will be more bust quarterbacks than others. And maybe that's just incorrect. And I don't know how to compensate for that. I mean, ultimately the, the move might be to not look at that at all and just focus primarily on top 10 and top 20 weeks. And because, because I'm unsure of the QB like the, the the bus week thing that's why in the article i only look at you know top 10 top 20 finishes so uh, that makes sense to me and i think that's probably right but it does raise the question the same like top 10 and top 20 are equally impacted by it right like you're looking at how many quarterbacks they beat out and the number of quarterbacks they beat out is different depending on the number of teams playing that no that's actually a good point i hadn't really considered that I wonder if you can scale it somehow to, if you can normalize the mm. data to, and now I'm just thinking out loud, I, I might have to try this where, you know, instead of saying this guy was a top 10 quarterback, you say he finished in the top 10% of scorers. Hmm. Right. And maybe that's the way to do it. If you finish in, you know, and, maybe, and, and again, if you could somehow tie it to points per game, you could do that with the bust weeks as well. You could say, okay, typically a bad week is when someone finishes in within like the bottom you know, 8% of, of scores at that position. Although I'm trying to do the math. 
because if we if we take four teams out of the equation, is that enough that it even makes a significant percentage difference? Let's Maybe. See. Maybe not. I'd have to do the math, and I'm not quick enough on my feet. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, at this point, we're just spitballing on the podcast. But it, I, I like that. I honestly like. I like that we're kind of describing thought process here because mm-hmm. this is something that is hard to do. And I, I don't want to like take a whole lot of credit for this because we're we just kind of started talking. But it is weird that like in the fantasy industry, we talk a lot about process and what process is and what process looks like and how do you make your process better. Like. These are the types of thought exercises I think that make your process better. And I honestly don't do this stuff enough with other people. I, I tend to kind of go down my own little rabbit hole. And then if I, if I sometimes I'll run into a brick wall and be like, well, now I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so, yeah, like, like talking about this stuff is, can definitely be helpful. So thanks, Josh. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I will be interested to see how this all shakes out because I, I really have used the startable quarterback percentage in my own way of viewing quarterbacks. And so if we can, if we can make it even more useful, I'm all for that. Yeah, so um, keep an eye out for that article. It'll be out this week uh, along with the podcast. And um, let, let me know what you think, uh, listeners, uh, if you want to you know, hit us up on Twitter or any of that stuff. That I, I'd, I'd appreciate basically all feedback because, as I just said, like discussing this stuff I think does help. It, it makes, makes the data and the analysis better. Um, I, I feel like it's about time to wrap this thing up, Josh. What do you think? Yeah, I think we, we've done a good job for a February podcast. Yeah, I, we didn't really have an agenda here, and, and we got to some some interesting topics. And, and I'm glad we got to talk about the Super Bowl, too, because, like I said, when, when I was watching the game, like I watch it with more casual viewers, and we don't get to go as in-depth on uh, you know, the real uh, football-heavy discussions. It was more about the, the commercials and whatnot. <laughs> so, so, th- so thanks for that, too. I appreciate it. Yeah, it was good to chat. Yeah. Um, do you have anything else coming up at, at 2QBs? I know you've been busy the past week. Is there anything like you want to plug f- that you've already published or anything that's coming up? I'm I'm just excited about the Dynasty season. We've really kind of intentionally focused on Dynasty at 2QBs, and it's been fun that we've had an article coming out basically every day. There's all sorts of things up there, rankings, ADP, articles on buying and buying low, selling high, things like that. So it, it's fun that we have kind of a a subset of the community that you guys are still listening. You're still reading because you're playing in dynasty leagues and it's fun to keep football going year round. Yeah. We've got a, a few new writers at the site too, which is really exciting. Um, we, we lost a, a couple people, uh, you know, just to the, the rigors of real life. And, and that's a shame. Like we'll, th- those writers will be missed, but we're going to try to pick up the slack. Uh, you know, we have a, a bunch of other, you know, exciting new people at the site and you should definitely come by, check that stuff out. Um, in addition to, you know, the regular host of characters, but, um, if you want to hit us up uh, for the podcast, you can always tweet at us at 2QBs, uh, or you can send us an email, 2QBs at gmail.com. In both cases, you got to spell it out, T-W-O-Q-B-S. Uh, if you want to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else, that would be appreciated. Yeah, man, that's that's all I got. There's the standard outro. And uh, Josh, anything else? No, it's been fun. Yeah, man, we'll do it again soon, and uh, stay tuned. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Adios. Adios.